Hi, I'm Brian Tyler. I'm here with my co-composer Casey the Cat, and uh, we're going to be talking movies, mummies, monsters, cars, <laughs> music, and um, and uh, anything else. I'll show <laughs> other stuff too. Well, Brian, thank you so much for uh, inviting me back to your amazing place and your amazing studio. It's sure. Great to catch up again. You too. Um, so last time we did a really extensive interview and we kind of talked about your background and stuff like that. So I do, you know, people, I do encourage people to go check out that interview because we talked about a lot of stuff. But I kind of want to touch back on your kind of uh, upbringing and kind of how everything kind of got started. Um, growing up, you were part of, your film was around you all the time, wasn't it, when you were little? Because your grandfather... Yeah, he was. I mean, he was a an Oscar-winning uh, art director. Art director. Yeah, yeah. He, Walter H. Tyler. Yeah, he, you know, um, film has always been around. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, my my life in the sense that one, I I always loved films. My grandfather being an art director. Right. You know, he taught me how to use lenses and develop film and wow. cut film and. And all that, and and since I had a had a thing for music, I always um, you know found that I think it was the two the two things that entertained me the most as a kid. I mean, it was like yeah. music and and movies, and so the the <laughs> the fact is <laughs> the fact is when 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 I saw how these two things worked together so well, right? Like you know, with John Williams and and E. T. and Raiders and Star Wars and all those. That's really that was how I originally kind of got in the lane of, whoa, okay, this is combining the two things that I really love, music and movies. And since I had a knack for playing instruments and, and started writing music pretty early, mm -hmm. um, I think it all just kind of made sense, you know? Was that always the plan to get into film composing or did you have another career aspiration before that kind of clicked together? There or? was really no other, I mean, I wanted to be involved with music right. and I wanted to be involved with movies. I mean, yeah. and and it did take a while for them to, to merge into one, right. into, to film composing specifically, but yeah. film music is what I listened to growing up. I had scores, as, that was my record collection. Yeah. You know? I had other things, but, but right. really the focus was, you know, Jerry Goldsmith and all that. And, and so, um, but at the same time, I shot little, you know, movies with my my pals and and I would edit stuff and do little special effects yeah. and kind of you know it was all like for five cents you know like anything that I could you know, take a firecracker and blow it up you know it was a lot of that kind of thing yeah and I would I would promise all the kids on my block like you, I'm I'm gonna direct a movie now I'm gonna cast all of you in it you know and and so and and they remember that and they remind me of that still but kind of yeah as time went I I, I really had more I had a knack for writing and. Music became such a big, big part of um, what I do that after a while it just became clear that this was, you know, at least a lane of of the horizon of what I wanted to do. I right. didn't necessarily think it would happen. Yeah. But yeah. I, I idolized right. if I could be conducting an orchestra, doing what John Williams does, basically. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. So what were the kind of the first jobs in the business that you had? Was it just assistant work? Were you just grabbing coffee? I mean, what were yeah. those first things that... You, you know, the, the first job I had in the industry... Well, okay, so you almost have to split it into two. The non-film industry, just music, yeah. I mean, I started doing gigs when I was like 12, you know, right, and then right. I, I was playing on records in my teens, and I, I did tours, and I played with bands, and, and so I was, I was kind of like pro, you know? <laughs> It got paid for it, yeah. in in both like I um, as a drummer and then um, a keyboardist and also I did DJing. I had turntables and I kind of had an act for that too. So all that was cool. I loved studying um, about orchestras and harmony and counterpoint. But that really wasn't a career. That was more like just something I was really interested in mm -hmm. and started to work with some orchestras and I played in an orchestra as percussionist. Uh, and um, and so all of this kind of you know had its uh, ha <laughs> Casey don't hit the camera stand. <laughs> My cat is giving us. She's just rubbing her scent. Yeah, on she's it. boom. Yeah. She, yeah, she just now that that's you, that's hers. Yeah, she's marked it hers. So so my first actual um, movie industry gig was I was an intern 
for a director, Norman Jewison. Mm. And I basically, I was in school and I just kind of tried to, <laughs> she's gonna knock that over. I just tried to, um, uh, you know, get in good with him. First I was just cleaning stuff and sweeping, mm -hmm. but then I saw this big stack of scripts and I said, hey, has, has coverage been done on this? Said, no, we get way too many scripts. So I started just reading script after script after wow. script and doing coverage of it all. And, um, and, and, then, and then when I got, you know, uh, out of school, one of my first gigs was I went to Sony Music to work, but I mean, my first gig was literally it was construction. You know, yeah. I, I had a wheelbarrow and I was tearing down drywall. <laughs> so it really didn't like, relate, but like, right. I just wanted to get my foot, I was like, anything, I just want my foot in the door. Right. Give me a chance, put me in coach kind of thing. Yeah. And so that was, that was that, you know, that's where I started. Right. Um, so when you, first, when you did start getting your gigs and you start, you know, composing on your own, as a young composer kind of starting off, it, is building your, I guess, building a sound or a style, is that like something that is uh, in your mind when you're setting up, like, kind of like, oh, I want Brian, Ty I want Brian Tyler's sound to be this, yeah. I want, or, or, at first, not so much. I mean, I think at first it was more a question of uh, how do I make stuff sound filmic? How yeah. do I make stuff sound, um, <laughs> um, I, I was so inspired by so many of my heroes, right? right? So it was both, it was kind of this blend of John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and Alex North and Maurice Jarre and Trevor Jones and James Horner and then kind of more of this hybrid vibe that was starting with Hans Zimmer and you know he'd been going you know Hans and and and, uh, and then more electronic like Vangelis and Alan Howarth and John yeah. Carpenter and then you combine this all with I was really into Radiohead and Nine Inch Nails and, and that was that was emerging at that time when I started scoring so like you know you kind of you know um, mm. I had a thing for John Barry as well his scores and like I mean it was all over the map but right. those influences kind of you put them in the stew and 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 I would deconstruct their pieces mm. and so I learned that way but the sound of me um, that, that people know is kind of my vibe and there's certain things that it's weird I, I do see on when I lurk on message boards, I do see these terminology like the Tylerism, yeah, <laughs> and you know, oh, he he favors this kind of mode or this kind of chord progression, whatever it is. Right. These melodies, I tend to have really rhythmic melodies against. Anyway, the, the, all those things just emerged naturally as I kind of my my version of trying to emulate others ended up <laughs> ended up really becoming a. <laughs> this is hilarious. Okay, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to pick you up. Um, sorry. <laughs> My version of emulating others um, ended up kind of morphing into who I am as a composer. Because because right. what I love harmonically, like I hear if I hear a Holst piece or a Arvo Parrot piece, and I'm like, what is that harmony? That's so interesting. The fact that I love it means there's something in my brain that's already preconditioned to yeah. gravitate towards that. So when I started composing film music, inevitably the, the chords and harmonies that I like in other music, mm -hmm. I now am going to use myself. And it's the combination of all my particular likes created right. my sound, I think. I think, yeah, I think so too. Okay. <laughs> I think, I think uh, uh, Richard Sherman said it the best. I talked to him about that somewhere too, and he says we're all sponges. We're just absorbing things, and we absorb everything and then regurgitate it out how we see it. How you do new. it. It's like, yeah. it, there's a, it's funny, it's not on music, but there's a really interesting book that Stephen Hawking wrote, it was, it was, and it's, it's called On the Shoulders of Giants. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about how, you know, Einstein and, and uh, all, all the different, uh, uh, quantum physicians, you know, right. they, they, all these people that that came before him kind of set him up. So him and Kip Thorne, when they're working on things like black holes and and trying to reconcile quantum mechanics with theory of relativity, all these things, he's like, you know what? This is I stand on the shoulder of the giants myself. Yeah. Now you have Lawrence Krauss and you have you know um, uh, Sean Carroll and all these other. The leaders in physics standing on the shoulders of Stephen Hawking and Kip right. Thorne, and, and it just keeps on going up. And it's like it's really in any field you do find this 
kind of pyramiding effect. Right, you know? right. And uh, some of your early scores, you really kind of got made name for yourself doing horror scores kind of early on. And, yeah. And, um, I mean, Frailty was an amazing one with Bill Paxton, and you did a bunch of kind of these really amazing horror scores. As a composer, um, how do you escape typecasting in this industry? Because I, I feel like a lot of composers get stuck in there. Yeah. And you managed to get out of there. Um, but was... I've, I've gotten out of the typecasting bubble about mm -hmm. like seven times, right. but you jump from one bubble to the next in a sense yeah. of where the, just people have such myopia. They only see right. this thing. And, and so it's really weird. I, I started uh, and I was typecast as the quirky indie movie guy that does like strange guitar music. Mm -hmm. Like believe it or not, you know, that, that six string samurai, that's Bubba Hotep, that's all the, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then it was like for, for a little bit of time it was like the indie drama. And then I got a horror film and another one and another one and it became, oh this is horror movies. And even right. the action film I did, Hunted, was William Friedkin so people thought Exorcist and I kind of got tied into that. Tied into that. And then, and I remember for a while, I was like, you know what, I really, and I was doing Constantine, and then you have these anomalies like Greatest Game Ever Played, um, and then basically I, uh, at a point I was like, you know, I'd love to, to do, just really spread my wings and do some action music, yeah. and, and I had to convince, what studio, is it Sony? I don't even remember. Uh, I had to convince a studio to do an action film, and it was like, can you do action music? Mm -hmm. And now that just sounds like a ridiculous, you know, now yeah. it's almost like that's, well, he does action music, right. can he do, and then you could just <laughs> name off one of the previous, genre. even happened on The Mummy, I mean, it was yeah. like, oh, he's doing, you know, uh, this Marvel music and Fast and Furious and these things, can he do like, you know, uh, uh, gothic horror film and I'm thinking guy I remember hearing the conversation can he do action because he can do gothic horror yeah, that was the you know so and and even even still like now there's a little conversation where I'm talking to people like I'm doing a comedy next mm -hmm. and of course I used to do comedies all the time it was like you know I I, I had com I did sitcoms <laughs> <laughs> like I, I had, like, I had numerous sitcoms on NBC and CBS and, right. and and Fox and stuff, and then I did these little indie, you know, comedy movies, and 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 of course that's all forgotten now. It's, it's like so, so again, it's like okay, no, I'm gonna, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, I have a sense of humor. It's gonna be fine. <laughs> Don't panic. <laughs> well, which I, and all these bubbles that you've managed to be in, you've done amazing work in all of them. So Thank I think you. That's, I think that's it. In, in the end, I think once you've escaped enough bubbles, you've proven your versatility. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there is a point where it kind of becomes, and and I I always admired that. And there are, the, I, you know, at a certain point, yeah, like yeah. you look at, uh, you know, Noon Howard and Hans and and Tom and and Alan and. You know, like they're, they're they're not restricted yeah, by sure. any of that stuff, and it's nice to see that that's um, you know coming yeah. my way now. Yeah. Um, so we, we did mention frailty and and Grace Game Ever Played, and that was with Bill Paxton who passed away yeah. just recently. And I just wanted to kind of maybe reflect on what was he like working with as a director, and and to be you know he's he was one of the greatest actors, but be, as a director and behind the camera, how was he? I mean, he to me he. And he he thought this as well, and I, he was right. I think his if he ranked his skills, director was mm -hmm. top, mm -hmm. acting was next to that. Right. Um, and he never really had the chance to show this, really, because he was always so busy as an, as an actor. And of course, you know, it's the kind of thing where he would be setting up the next movie, and we were there was there was like three different projects we were working on in terms of the next collaboration for direct, directing and composing. Right. And they were all super interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so when we did Greatest Game Ever, well first we did Frailty together. Right. And for a director to show a range like Frailty into Greatest Game Ever Played, you're talking about a really gothic horror film into a, a, a period piece drama about turn of the century immigrants. That's mm -hmm. heartfelt and it makes you cry, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. and has some, you know, heroic kind of sport kind of things in it. But it's funny, it, people sometimes see that movie and they're like, oh, is that about golf? And, and I kind of, it's like, <laughs> it's like, it, yeah, it, yes, that's an element to it because it's a true story about this guy, but right. but it's kind of like, it's about golf as like, 
if you if you said, hey, I haven't seen that movie, Titanic, is that about a boat? <laughs> You're like, no, you know what I mean? Like, it's it, so, it, it kind of, so, but anyway, back to his, his depth, had this great depth, really smart guy, a student of history and film, and we bonded over Bernard Herrmann, and we bonded over, you know, just, all this kind of history of film and and so when we got going he wanted to do it old school on everything yeah. he would say i'm going to come over i want you to play me the score on the piano don't mock-ups were not a thing wow and i'd sit down and i would play the piano that piano as a matter of fact the piano that's in here wow. that's the piano that i played the themes and i remember him sitting there and he would know immediately yep you know and he would be emotional about it too. If something struck him, he would show it, and uh, that's how he how he did it. So we worked in a really uh, in a way that was much more like to him, Herman Hitchcock. Yeah, very much. You know, and uh, he was not a fan of thing digital stuff. Yeah, not a not a big digital <laughs> guy. So it was it was great, super super, and then we became good friends and. And we were talking shortly before he passed away, unexpectedly. I remember mm. he was going in for a surgery, but he was um, at the Grand Ole Opry, and he sent me some pictures of Leonard Bernstein, because he knows I'm, I modeled conducting after him, and showed me a picture of his baton, and he just texted me a bunch of stuff. And it was just shocking, and he, I mean, yeah. I, I miss him a lot, you know? I mean, he was, he was really a, a favorite person of mine. Yeah, he's a great guy. I mean, yeah. And a just great artists as well. Totally, yes. Um, um, hey, oh, so <laughs> th this piano was uh, the piano I used on all my scores up till 2005. And interesting, like that's literally like I remember Bill Paxton sitting down. Just... Now, now I have it in here in the house, so if I need to, you know... Right, Casey? Um, I, I play in here and I write a lot of music in here, which is away from my studio, which is cool because it gives me two different spaces and there's more light in here because I intentionally don't put windows in my studio so I don't know what time it is, you see? <laughs> So, that's that. <laughs> yeah. So kind of focusing, kind of going into your, into your process a little bit, um, kind of in general, I always like to ask composers this question, I don't think I asked you this last time, but where does the first note come from? I know it's going to be different from every film, but like, from yeah. every film, but where do you look for that first idea to pull out of your head? I mean, is it just looking at finished footage, looking at the first cut, looking at the script? I mean... Yeah, it depends mm -hmm. uh, on the project. Um, I, I usually, almost always though, have at least a first mode of operation, which mm -hmm. is theme first. Right. So whatever that kind of core theme is, that's the first thing I write. So I sit down at the piano, it's almost every time, invariably sit down at the piano and write a theme. Now that can be from, uh, like on timeline, being I, I started the movie at the very end of the process. Right, and you were replacing. I was replacing Jerry Goldsmith mm -hmm. and, and so, there, you know, that was, they had a film that was done. Yeah. You yeah. know, so I, I had a film and it's like, Go, 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 go. And, and you just immediately start writing to picture. You dive into the middle of the movie somewhere, a pivotal scene. Mm -hmm. You pick that one and then maybe another one and another one. You write and you just write for the orchestra and you're just, your hair is on fire and you're upside down. And, but, but, but The Mummy, for instance, I started when we were working on the script and Alex would send me versions of the, the screenplay, which actually were quite different. And, and, I, and I worked on it for years, you know? The first interview we did, you were already working on it. I remember you showed me some samples or demos that you yeah. put together. That was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And I, had, I probably had already written like a half an hour music to the screenplay. Yeah. And then, and I'm not even sure when this was, but I'm, I mean, I was writing. And I remember when Tom Cruise was cast. 
I mean, to give you an idea, you know, and, yeah. and then of course it takes a different direction and, right. and as it goes and as they shoot and, and as, it, you know, and, and I was writing up to the very last on that, you know? So if you, if you are lucky to be on board early, do you, do you read the script first and get, and is that you're kind of first, like, I want the script. And yeah. I always read the script. Um, if I can go on the set, that's great. I've done that a lot. I do right. that for the Fast and Furious movies. I, the mummy, I was on set out there and I, I happened to be doing a concert out in London and they were shooting in London and then yeah. Tom Cruise came to my concert and he's like, why don't you come on set tomorrow? And so I went out there, it was the scene with the plane, um, before they actually shot the, you know, because they really shot that plane diving to earth and yeah. it's, it's 64 takes and all that crazy. <laughs> but the scene right before where they're in the plane kind of preparing for the, I, I was, I was there, it was really cool. And then I got to see the sarcophagus and I got to see prodigium and all these different the layers. And, and I, I remember like physically being in the space thinking yeah. like, whoa, this is, this is giving me more ideas. Right. Yeah. So on some big budget films, um, like The Mummy, you were mentioning how the, the edit can change drastically throughout production, you know, whether they do retakes or reshoots or maybe they go in different directions. Right. So how do you keep this, I guess, how do you keep this, because I feel like a score is such a delicate thing where if you change something here, it affects something over it here. Does. So how do you keep the structure of your score from collapsing if something drastic changes or if any reshoots happen or if they tweak the edit at all? I mean, so, you know... Uh, Mummy is a good example, yeah. actually, of restructuring while you're on the fly. Because what you need to do is make sure if you're restructuring something that it, like a modular fit, it fits, you can take the part out and you can replace it with something and it still fits mm -hmm. with this. So the thing that I've become accustomed to when I go to write something new that's going to fit in with the score as a whole, I automatically, for I have in mind what's already there, and I'm not going to do something that doesn't fit. It's just, I won't even think of it. It's like, it's kind of cool because it limits you in a way, but at the same time, sometimes limitations are the best spurn of a creati creativity. Right, right. If you can do literally anything, it's too much. You're like, I don't know what to, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I, encounter, I encounter this when I go to like a restaurant that has the billion page menu. Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, yeah. I can I look, I can. And then you get this weird thing, you're like, well, I'm gonna get some, some sushi and cheese fries and, <laughs> you know, tortilla and tacos and a burger. And you know what I mean? You're just like, ah. So the fact is, if you have kind of a, like with Mummy, it was Gothic, it was um, uh, uh, kind of Wagnerian and, 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 and kind of classic in that way, but also old school referred to kind of the Polish avant-garde and different things like that. Yeah. There, there's this lane. So when I went and at the last, I, as I've, ex, I've explained before, I, I, I rewrote Nick's theme. Yeah, you're talking and, about that at the Yeah, yeah, so, which was insane because Nick's theme is, Nick is Tom Cruise. Right. And he's in like every scene. Right. And so, <laughs> and it was at the very, very, the last, I had two days before my last recording session at Abbey Road, gonna record there and, 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 um, she helped out, and uh, and and basically, I decided that, and the director and the editor and Tom Cruise and we all, we were like, you know what, this new theme that I wrote on the piano only, was like, this is a better Nick theme than the Nick theme we had. That that other Nick theme fit the old Nick character. Now we've changed the movie. Right. Now that was in I think 17 spots in the movie, different okay. 17 cues. Not spots, but full cues. Yeah. And those ones I had to, over the weekend, go in and write new and then make sure that it fit now with what came before and what came after. Interestingly enough, it actually took care of some problems too because some of the movie moved since we'd record mm -hmm. and there were cues that used to be like, here was a piece of music and here was a piece of music, right? And then the movie moved and all of a sudden it was like half of the middle half of this got moved into the first quarter of this piece, which moved this out, which bumped to this piece, but now this piece is, this scene is gone, so this one got butted up, and you have all these weird key changes. Yeah. And so, what I did is it happens to be, I'm like, you know what, I'm just gonna rewrite, the, I'm gonna smooth all this out and make it, and it, it ended up actually being more like custom for the film yeah. than even the original stuff. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's and you said you're up like, all night, right? I oh yeah, yeah. So it was Friday night that I, <laughs> I I wrote this theme, and then Monday morning, and this is Friday night Los Angeles time, you know. <laughs> so it was Monday we had the recording session. So it was just in Abbey Road, straight through at Abbey Road. Wow. Yeah. So it was 
bonkers, <laughs> you know, and people, I mean, I remember also orchestrators on the plane, you know, handing them stuff. I mean, it was like literally we're on the plane and <laughs> handing stuff. I was nuts. That's amazing. She has fully gotten in, in here. <laughs> What's up, Casey? Hey, Casey. Yes, okay. <laughs> So we, we, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but you're talking about having a short time span to work on and having or having unlimited power of, of no you know, deadlines. Right. But when you say you're like timeline where you're replacing a score and you have to you know, do it quickly versus something like the mummy where you have years to work on it, do you, does your, do you automatically kind of switch your brain to a different mode? Like do you have a protocol for, all right, two weeks to go, we got to do this? I mean, or does it just happen instinctively? Yeah, it just, it just kind of happens. I think, you know, I probably wouldn't push it to 21 hour days if, mm -hmm. if I don't have that imminent thing. Right. But sometimes you get inspired and I, I can't help it. I, I end up staying up all night all the time. I mean, I did it last night. I don't have an immediate deadline on a movie like right now, but I did it anyway because I just get into it, you know? No, I know how that is, like, when it, if I'm editing something and it's in your head, it doesn't escape your head until it's You just want to do it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I was doing some stuff, some drumming, and, and like, as you can see, blood bluster here. <laughs> and I was just doing it too much, and, and, and I was working with Kill the Noise on a new track, and we just got into it, you know? And, right. and so, it doesn't, it doesn't really, the fact that I do these crazy hours, the, is part of the love, but sometimes when you have back to back to back to back to back movies or something like that, and you do it for too long, like seven, eight, nine months straight of seven hour, you know, seven days a week, you know, minimum 18 hour days, then it starts to kind of like, mm. it's just physically, it, it becomes uh, difficult. Something starts breaking down yeah. and, 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 I, and I did, and after I finished The Mummy, which was, you know, back to back with a bunch of movies, I did, a different thing. I went out and did, you know, I did the conducted and the concerts mm -hmm. and stuff like that and went to Europe and then kind of chilled and and that was cool, you know. I, I got out of the studio at least. Right. Yeah. Do, you, I mean, do, you set, do you set time for yourself to have a break in your schedule throughout the year or do you like, I need to take a, a month off or I need to take, no. to refresh? No, it's just whenever it lands, you yeah. know. You do, you, you do it till the movie, because movie schedules change all the time. Right. I mean, I was doing the Power Rangers movie kind of, you know, with, with Fast and Furious starting and then Triple X ending, but Power Rangers was supposed to be way, way before any of those. Mm -hmm. I remember like a year before. Yeah. So, so it moved and it landed, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then there are certain other ones. There was a, it was frustrating because there was certain other things, there was a couple really great, very big movies that, that, um, that uh, I, I really loved, that, yes. that I was going to score. Right. But then ones that I'd already committed to moved into that place and then it blocks you from being able to do right. these other ones or sometimes you can't do a sequel of a movie that you've already even done the last one. You can't. You yeah. know, like, and that's frustrating too because you want your legacy to yeah. be musically carried on and their continuity. Like things like that just, those are the frustrating parts about it. You can't do anything about it. Right. But you can't do everything. And I, and I see some people do that. They, they kind of you, you see like more of a stacking. I try to really kind of make it so at least it's humanly possible yeah. for me to write everything. <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> so what's the, the sh I guess the shortest amount of time you've ever had to work on a film? Um, five, like, five days. Five days for start to finish? Yeah, I think it was five working days and then we got into mixing mm -hmm. and, and dubbing and I know, I, I, I know there was eight days on fourth floor, I think, and then it was five on break. Wow. Which was bonkers. <laughs> and that one was also me playing all the instruments, so it yeah. actually made it harder. Harder in some ways, I didn't have to, fortunately, when I do all the instruments, I don't write anything down, so at least I you know, can go right into it, and mm -hmm. I don't have to worry about scribbling stuff out for someone and kind of going, no, play it this way, you know, so. <laughs> I, I, and, and weirdly enough, those are two of, I think, my most creative scores. Yeah, I love break. <laughs> so, I, mm, anyway, um, so it shows you, you just, you never know. And what's the longest? Like, I mean, the mummy you said it's Mummy's got to be the longest. Yeah. Um, I think, unless you count that I didn't know that I was writing Children of Dune music when right. I was a little kid, <laughs> when I read the books, you know. Right. Uh, so that, you know, what do you think, Casey? She's been around for a lot of this, yeah. <laughs> she came on board 
during, um, I believe it was right before Constantine. Wow. Yeah. And I remember her hanging out with like Richard Donner and stuff when they come over. So I know at least she's been around that long. That's a, that's a, you've been, seen some stuff, Casey. She's been doing it. She's seen a lot. <laughs> she's seen she a lot. She has secrets. If those kids, that, that can talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I do want to talk a little bit about psychology and music. I know you, yeah. um, implement kind of music psychology in the way you approach things. I mean, uh, you got your degree at Harvard. Was it in psychology or philosophy? Yeah, no, exactly. I did. Well, not a, psychology, but I love psychology. Yeah, but it was, yeah, it was yeah, philosophy. Yeah, right? philosophy, so history, thing. yeah. But me, I think composers, naturally, you have to be a psychologist because you're interpreting emotions, you're analyzing characters. And I remember we discussed something about Iron Man 3 where you were doing certain techniques. I mean, what kind of, yeah. I guess, um, things do you implement in your writing that would kind of fall in that d d category of music psychology? Yeah, or? it's like psychology, psychoacoustics, yes, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, the, it's an interesting field. Um, it's a mysterious field, yeah, but, but yeah. certainly there are all sorts of kind of um, tricks of the brain mm. um, that, that can be utilized to kind of bring about um, both emotion and narrative. Uh, which really are the two things that music tends to do right. in a film is that you want to bring out the emotion and and what is the person feeling and what does the what is the viewer supposed to feel what is right. the intended emotion from the director for the viewer then also I find is something that's uh, underappreciated is the ability of music to frame narrative in a way that um, clarifies storyline, story points. And that's where kind of, you're talking about Iron Man 3 as an example, mm -hmm. where, and actually any film that's thematic, is that you use themes to clarify story points by not just using themes when you see the character, here comes their theme, there's the late motif right. basic idea. Right, right. You, you change that up so you use parts of their themes at certain times when they're not on screen to clarify um, even subconscious uh, things like a motivation of a character to do something, that character may be doing something because of another character, you, I tend to use the other person's theme there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not using the person that's actually in the, scene theme, the scene's theme, right. I'm using something else because that's the motivating factor for the story point. Right. And I find that it subconsciously clarifies narrative a lot and can, and can kind of clean up the... the the way someone thinks about a story um, in a way that hopefully reflects what the director wanted in the first place. Right, right. Um, but you did, you did, and you did get your degree in philosophy, yes. Yeah. So what, I mean, that's a completely different field. What, what you know, was you getting a master's at Harvard? How do you do you implement that in your real into the your life today and what you do and everything? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. In fact, it was. Um, it started in undergrad when I did history and, right. and so, so it's like history and philosophy and and um, and uh, all the, all these elements how, how people learn mm -hmm. you know um, education all those things there's things that I studied and and I find that those are natural things that I would pursue mm -hmm. uh, out of curiosity but mm -hmm. I think that there's a practical application for all of that um, seeing how, you know, seeing how the, the way people arrive at their own truths or mm -hmm. their, um, the way that they, uh, manage situations, those, those things actually apply to the dramatic, um, and, and story, story is so, good storytelling is, yeah. is so uh, connected to metaphor and to, um, you know, kind of when someone says, gosh, well, what did I get out of this movie? What was the moral of the story? Or the, not so much moral being ethics, right. uh, more, what is the through line? What is the drive? What are we trying to say here? Mm -hmm. We want to say something with the story. You want to say something with the music. And it, it's, uh, it, it, it's sometimes a bit esoteric and abstract, yeah. but at the same time, these things matter, and and they're the reason why when you hear Threnody for Hiroshima, you know the, the Penderecki piece, you you immediately get it. 
you know, you're like, wow, I, I, I can hear that in this music. Yeah. Why when you hear Schindler's List theme with Itzhak Perlman playing it with the John Williams score, it's like, you, you, you get it, you, you get, okay, there's this, the, 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 the philosophy behind what m made folk music sound that way in that tradition means something to us. So we, we want to preserve that. And, and, and so in a way, it really has this ripple effect, this domino effect mm -hmm. that, that goes all the way down and gets to a set at a core with, you know, with music and how mm -hmm. we interpret it. Well, I mean, I love that explanation everything because for me growing up, storytelling not just film music but i mean i'm not a musician i'm you know i went to film school and everything but what it, it made sense to me because yeah it was the only thing that made sense to me because it was kind of this examination of the human condition and i found that was the best way to like look at the way we live the sure. way we interact with each other i mean there's so many different amazing fields out there but for just i don't know it's just something about storytelling it, that, it, it is and and you know. and to me like i it, I can never separate, and people shouldn't as artists, separate themselves from their art mm -hmm. and who they are and, yeah. and kind of your, your point of view, you know, I'm a, I'm a secular humanist, right? Mm -hmm. So in, in, invariably I kind of have this, you know, um, this, this look at the world that's like, okay, well we have this one life to live, we want to make sure that you, you express it in a way, so I tend to be kind of like, a very emotional about yeah. things yeah. that may, maybe others wouldn't like for instance I get emotional looking through a telescope like a, like images from the Hubble telescope yeah. it makes me and and that's part of just kind of my angle that's that that's where I come from and um, and science makes me emotional and yeah. and 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 this this search for the search for truth and all these things so so answers, yeah, yeah yeah exactly and 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 you're, you're, I tend to feel a little bit like that existential crisis too, where I feel very tiny, yeah. you know? And, and, and so, so, so when I'm listening to Sigur Ross and I'm like feeling tiny, you know, that's like, you know, you, you do feel the sense of the transcendence without it being um, religious for me, that right. it's, it's, it's a, they're two different things. But um, I definitely, you listen to my music, you, that is all in there, you know? Yeah. And I don't think I could even extract it if I wanted to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was a little tangent, but it was so back, back to movie making. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's, uh, you've been part of a lot of amazing scores for these kind of franchises and cinematic universes. You just started a new one with The Mummy that's going to be a, a dark kind of universe with the Universal Monsters sure. and, and Marvel and everything. Um, but I'm just interested in you know, if you can speak freely about it, do you think the cinemat these cinematic universes, are they a result of Marvel's success financially and that's why people are doing it? Or do you think audiences really gravitate towards that? I think there's a little of both. I think the mm -hmm. audience drives the, the market for the success to be, uh, to let Marvel opened up a window to other studios saying, oh, we can invest a lot into this other thing that's something that otherwise they wouldn't make because it'd be too expensive right. but they see the model has worked for marvel right and so warner brothers and sony and fox and um uh lionsgate and of course universal with their with their properties they're like you know what we've been wanting to do this mm -hmm. but it was maybe cost prohibitive maybe we can do what we artistically wanted to do in the first place right. but we thought it was maybe too expensive maybe we can mm -hmm. you know and you take a swing for it anytime you make a movie you are you are and tr try to open up something like a new universe of characters yeah, yeah. it's always a risk and you never know how people are going to react but you just go with what your gut is and i know these studio executives most of the studio executives i know are movie fans, you know, like they didn't just kind of accidentally get in the movie, you know, they, mm -hmm. they actually, you know, I think they get like in a way a bad rap for being execs, but at the same time, like to me, I'm looking at them going, you know, thinking, okay, they, it is so hard to make a film and, and make it successful and critically praised and all these things all in a row, but at no time did I, have I sensed that kind of um, uh, some kind of oh gosh what should I how should I call it I, I haven't I ha personally I haven't encountered that that kind of 
uh, disrespect for the the movie process themselves, where it just becomes how can we make a buck? Like right. that is not something that if you really are in the trenches with these people on right. the dub stage and in editorial, I've never heard one like you know working so closely like Kevin Feige for instance on these Marvel movies. It's always how can we make this movie better? Oh, as a fan, I remember this character as a kid when I was reading the comic. Can we bring that character out a little bit more? Does the story make sense here? Is it more dramatic to have this? Is it more? I've never heard them go, you know, if we have this scene here, we're going to make more money in this country. And then we're going to, like, I think there's a suspicion by, like, the, the public, like, right. the, looking in that this is how it operates. And, it, and to me, at least in my experience, um, I, I, it's, it's nice to see that... It, they're truly like trying to make as good of a movie as you can. Right. You know? And I, I mean, I've, nobody's trying to make shit work. I don't think nobody's trying to do like a bad job. I think everyone. No one's trying to do a bad job. Yeah. And, and it's also, I don't, beyond just not trying to do a bad job, of course they want to do a good job. Right. Because that'll, you know, uh, sell tickets. But I don't think it's done, from at least what I've worked on, and, and I haven't seen that kind of doing an ass backwards thing where they're mm -hmm. like, okay. How can we make a bunch of money? Let's do it this way. Mm -hmm. um, even the movies that are like extremely commercial, they just, that is not the discussion. I mean, look at Fast and Furious. You know, it does incredibly well. It's insane, yeah. right? But if you look at it, they didn't need to make Fast and Furious 3. Universal could have walked away from it. And it's like, you know, Justin Lin and the gang we were like excited about doing something in Tokyo and you know, maybe people will like it. Maybe it'll kind of spurn something on. Some people loved it, some people didn't, but it was done like they, they knew full well this movie, uh, you know, was, eh, who knows if people are gonna check it out. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that it built upon that movie and it became this big success and it's yeah. now about family and all these things and, and they kind of took a different turn. Um, that was someone at the studio going, you know, okay, we believe in your enthusiasm, you know? Right. Um, so how do you react when, uh, when the, you do put your heart into something, something like The Mummy, and The Mummy did get kind of bashed critically. Yeah. I mean, how do you react to negative criticism like that from, do you look at it and you, do you go, no, oh, maybe they have a point, or do you just kind of not let it affect your thought process? Uh, it's, it's, it's everything. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at things, I think as you're doing a movie, you you see you know it so well you see okay here's our strengths and here's our weaknesses let's try to right. help the weaknesses and and so you know I, but I think that the in terms of the critics mm -hmm. and kind of like a general you know like message boardy kind of bandwagon thing yeah, yeah. it's so easy to go one way or the other like on stuff that's actually pretty close yeah, you know yeah. and <laughs> and and you look back in history when I go back and, and I look at movies. And I look at how they're received at the time, and now I watch it, and I'm like, that's actually cool. I mean, you look at Blade Runner, they got trashed. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and, and then finally, you know, like, I mean, watch the Siskel and Ebert review of some of these. I mean, it's, it's incredible, you know? Like, you're like, how did you not know? How did you not know? That's insane. But, but at the same time, when you, when you release it, you, you're realistic about, okay, Here's an area where, you know, we all wish we could have done this. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you put your heart and soul into it and you put your best foot forward. And like on The Mummy, I love doing that movie and I, and I, and I love it. And, and there is a bit of mystery when I go, okay, I see some of the things they're saying here and there, but this is, I kind of, it's not even like sour grapes. It's just like, you read some of the stuff and it's it's bandwagony trying yeah. to be cool uh it, it, like you know um, well, i think we live in a time also where certain headlines yes. get clicks and clicks get money it's fun you know like mm -hmm. and 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 maybe someone has something like against tom cruise or mm -hmm. whatever and so they're gonna or they don't like the fact that they love the original Mummy and why are we doing another one? Whatever it is, you know, right, like, right. and I'm looking at it going, Tom's great in it, you know, and the guy that I have mad respect for now that I've worked with him, and, and all, all these things, it's a very difficult thing to pull off any movie that even gets out to the theaters yeah. is a small miracle. From it to like, for the person that was like, I have an idea, to <laughs> in the theater, yeah. like, anyone that's a hater, go try to do it. Yeah. It's, yeah incredibly difficult right. i'm lucky enough to like jump on the train as it's going and like be like i'm going to do some music but 
for the people that like really get a movie off the ground and rolling and get it to into the theater and for it to make sense and kind of hold together is crazy. Yeah. It's way harder than it looks. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, and going, kind of coming back a little bit to your processes a bit, um, some of the you know these movies that you score, and we talked about it last time, but you, you ended up scoring a lot of movies with ensemble casts. And yeah. Like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers and even the Fast Furious movies and Avengers. Sure. Um, and you've created these awesome themes for these movies. And I'm always curious, I don't know if I'm, forget if I even asked you this, I don't think I did, is where does that theme come from if you don't have... I know. If, if so the ensemble like characters, what is dictating the tone? I mean, what is... What this is, is something that really came apparent to me when I was doing the Expendables series. Oh because yeah, I forgot, yeah, Expendables too. You know, it's like starring, like the, the <laughs> above the line main stars, there's like, you know, 72 of them, yeah, right? right. And, and, and so what I found was, you know, and, and as I was doing that, that's when Fast started to kind of like come back with the original ensemble and added more characters. Yeah. And what I did is I had to get out of the mindset of I need to score every character's theme. Mm -hmm. And you just can't. So, for instance, I'll take Fast and Furious as an example. You want to you wanna have themes and vibes for the different characters. Roman, which is Tyrese's character, and Luda, mm -hmm. they, they, they have this like theme that's now been established in the last few movies that you hear throughout. You have, uh, with Paul Walker's character, Brian and Mia's theme is kind of a romantic theme. And then you have a Letty and, and Dom theme that's a little sadder. Dom has a stoic theme. Okay, so now you get into quite a few themes. Then you have, individually, the villains. They have to have a theme that's new for each film. Right. So, so there's your kind of basis. Now, whether or not people track all those totally, Maybe they don't, maybe they do. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed as many people do because I get emails yeah, and, and do, things yeah. in it. But I needed a unifying theme, the like team theme. Yeah, team theme. Right, team theme. And, and so for Expendables and Fast and Furious and Power Rangers and Avengers and all these films, I needed to find a central theme um, that would uh, kind of tell the story for all of them. Yeah. And it's usually going to be a they are kicking ass theme. Yeah. So it's, it's usually a positive theme. Is it as simple as just being a heroic theme? Kind of, yeah, but it has to capture what they're about. So right. like Power Rangers actually has a, since they're striving to be Power Rangers, they haven't made it yet really. So it's like a very, it's an aspirational theme. It's like, it's, it's actually minor, but it feel, but it kind of lifts at the end of the melody. And it, and, yeah, yeah, and so it kind of has this longing feel, you know, it's like, yeah. it's more like hashtag feels. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, what you hear when you hear <laughs> M83 and stuff like that, and, right. and you kind of, but, but at the same time, it's in the structure of a, of, of, a, of a score. Things like Turtles, straight up comic fun, you know, yeah. it's like, it's really, it's, it's a march, it's in 12-8, it's raucous. And, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and then of course, Fast and Furious, which is much more of like a, almost like a rock theme, you know, um, even though it's orchestral. Right. Um, so, yeah, depends. <laughs> um, so kind of looking at your career where you are now, do you, as, I mean, do you set, you know, sometimes you have people ask yourself, where do you see yourself in five years? I don't think that applies to a composer in this position, but I mean, in your position, but do you set personal goals for yourself? I mean, do you, are you, I'm at yeah. this point in my career, I still want to accomplish this. I mean. Yeah, I, I you know, the kind of the goals are that, that you kind of try to work at, at working hard, basically, right, and and, and and trying to expand your palette. You know, I love doing dramas. I'm I want one to really, like you know, catch the uh, really catch the ears and eyes of, of, of the world. Like Truth, for instance, in these Truth movies that I've done. Yeah. Um, you know, and you want it to you want those ones to really catch on more. Mm -hmm. um, but but I, I love dramas, so that's something that I like to. For instance, also this year, I was just like, I want to do a comedy. Yeah. I want to do a comedy. So I'm doing a comedy. Um, and, and it's hilarious and it's going to be great. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, the, the, these are the things that, that you know, you, you, you make goals. It's not so much like a goal like, I want to win an academy. It's not, it's not that kind of thing for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. It's more about the music and the other stuff kind of comes. Um, I never even thought I want to do well at the box office. Mm-hmm. You know, great. You know, I'm shocked. You know, at you know, you see that running list. There's a list. I don't even know this. There's like box office 
it's like the numbers yeah. that come and they have this list of all time box office. And I see, and I think of myself as like, I'm just starting and I see right now I'm like ninth all time yeah. of composers. And I'm thinking, wait, what? How did that happen? I was just doing this independent film and now I'm trying to do this other stuff. <laughs> and, you, 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 and so you, you see this like kind of weird thing happen and you realize, okay, I can't focus on like accolades or success or box office or anything like that. You just need to go where the music takes you. And, and that's why I'm doing things that, that like Mad Sonic, that's just a total separate project that I'm yeah. doing as a creative outlet. And I find that, that success, either if it's critically or financially or whatever, the second you start focusing on that is probably the second that it's all going to vanish. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think about it and right. I let my managers worry about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, stylistically, are you still, or, or aesthetically, stylistically, are you still growing? Are you evolving? I mean, are you... Always. Do, every, do you like wake up in the morning and go, I want to change the way my sound yeah, is? I'm, I'm always, I, I, the thing I'm always doing is just working on basic theory of, um, uh, basically theory I should say like I, as I might get more uh, interested in in um, theory, music theory that's way out on the outer edge mm -hmm. scales that are really new and, and you don't want to get into the vibe of where I know how to do this and this is under my fingertips because it's easy mm -hmm. so you know going and studying other composers from the history of composition classical avant-garde jazz all these things you, you, you find yourself in different modes where I would not have done that naturally, but now it's going to be part of my arsenal. Just, you get, in, so in terms of growing, it's really challenging myself to learn music that I am not as familiar with. Right. And, and, and for me, that's why I, like, you know, subdividing electronic music into, mm -hmm. you know, 32 subgenres. I want to know all of those. I want to know how to program, you know, drum and bass versus dubstep versus trap. Why are they different? Do you do side chains on the sub and can you go below this key and use it? All this stuff that, okay, and then you go and you're talking about classical music, orchestration of Bartok and, and how does that, you know, uh, how does Bartok, you know, relate to something that's completely in a different milieu? You know, you're like, why is Rachmaninoff sound like this and Bartok sounds like, oh, well, I get it. So Bartok relates to this and then you get into Steve Reich and then you get into John Cage and Crumb and, and all this, you know, and, and pretty soon you're just loving music and not being, there's not as many like borders to how you write. Right, you you yeah. will write outside the box more. Your, your box of your knowledge is this yeah. and you're going to write here. So what you want to do is expand your knowledge so you can write here and then yeah. you just keep going and, so keep moving the wall back. That, that's yeah. That's my. That's well, the way I keep going. <laughs> I have enjoyed listening to you throughout your career, and it's been thank you amazing, amazing following you. And uh, and thank you again for your time tonight. Of course, and it was so thank, great to thanks for coming to by. Digging into stuff again, and we'll do it again again. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. What do you think, Casey? Yeah. Casey, is it good? Was it a good interview? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>